Interior. Night. Recording studio. Two redheads begin pre-show warm-ups. Red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather. Jack, write that you gargle your water or something. Jack gargles some water. And then put that we say, welcome to Script Shop. Who? Me or you? Mm-hmm. You say it. Welcome to Script Shop. N- no, but like, really, say it. Like, right now. Like, right now. Let's go for it. Welcome to Scrimshaw. No, Jack. Top. <laughs> Omaha. No, Jack. Welcome to Script Shop. Script Shop is the name of the podcast you're listening to. That was what the intro just was just now. Uh, hi there. I'm Jack, and I'm fascinated to know whether or not guys wear pajamas to bed. That's right. Because I don't. But, Frank, do you wear formal pajamas? Usually. Really? Mm-hmm. Like a button-up shirt thing and, like, the, the, the flowy pants? It's, it's a T-shirt and, like, baggy pajama pants. Oh, so you're not doing, like, a Rip Van Winkle, like, nightgown? <laughs> no candle long night cap or anything like that i think that'd be awesome to try one yes also what about butt flaps those were a thing in the old day you had long johns with butt flaps saves you from taking off your pants in the middle of the night when you have to go out to the outhouse right (laughs) um well so uh and that was frank uh you know him from the show of course and uh allison's here too yes i wear uh in terms of me wearing pajamas it varies all the time I, w- I go from wearing all the pajamas to wearing no, none of the pajamas. Okay. Yeah. So this is Allison. That's my pajama situation. Mm-hmm. And this is our script podcast where we talk to people about the work that they've <laughs> written. Different in levels of nudity as we go to bed. Varying degrees of undress. Sure. <laughs> we're a sexy show. Yeah, we have, we're yeah. very hot. This is Yeah. We're talking about button-up shirts and dressing like Dick Van Dyke in the middle of the night. <laughs> Honestly, most of the time I go to bed with more clothes on and then I get hot during the night and so oh, okay. things just start coming off left yeah. and right well and it's a whole other thing too when you're like sharing a bed with like a spouse that who's warm yeah yeah fills a warm cat he's a warm cat yeah meow meow yeah. <laughs> uh anyway so this is the podcast where we talk about scripts uh with screenwriters uh, our guest today is e.m sparrow who wrote a script called the imaginist yes it's a 20 page vaudeville love story featuring magic hyper realism which, if you're unfamiliar with the term, mm-hmm. hyper-real, um, hyper, I think it's hyper-realism. Now I want to double-check. Um, yep. It's basically a magical aspect of um, a lot of Spanish writing, Hispanic okay. uh, literature, where it takes things that are like actual life, but they're a little bit more magic than okay. that. And it's a very, very fascinating theme that we get showing up through some of the imaginist work in this script. This script is also overflowing with charm. It's lovely. It's very lovely. It's very cute. And I like that there is a... Um, uh, it's a so the Wikipedia definition of hyperrealism is not what I think it is. So oh. that means that I need to figure out what my real word is I'm trying to find. Okay. Because the internet is never wrong. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the internet, though, you can find us on there, and it's all right that way. It's, it's, it's never nothing wrong about finding us on the internet by going to <laughs> Script Shop Show. Listen, I'm really trying to thread a – it's, it's a tough needle to thread here. I, I honestly have no idea what that segue with the all right ways Well, you said been. the internet is, is never wrong, there and so we, well, it's right to check us out, and we're on ScriptShopShow.com. That's the one way you can do it. Also on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram. Uh, look up Script Shop Show on those platforms, and you can find us and you can be our friend and you can follow us and you can see the little videos that we post every oh, week for the so show funny. and uh, the promos that we run and uh, just various conversations that we like to have. I like to post about movies on my Script Shop Jack Twitter account. And I like posting little things about my little master who keeps me awake 
couple of nights in a row. That little picture of your baby standing up in the crib, smiling at you, and you posted something like, here's my evil tormentor keeping me up for the 20th hour of the day was so perfect. Uh, she's wonderful. She is wonderful. And I'm happy to stay awake if it means that she's going to grow and live and get what she needs. That being said, we're funny on Twitter, so you should wow. go check us out. Um, also, if you're interested in getting your scripts to us so that we can talk about our pajamas and relationship to them, mm-hmm. you can do that. On While sp- you're patiently waiting on the phone <laughs> or on Skype for us to this waste is, time talking about This pajamas. is where we start talking real fast because we realize we have a guest sitting on the other end. <laughs> you can go to scriptshopshow.com slash submit or filmfreeway.com and submit your script to us there. We won't keep you hanging like we are with EM. Yes, and and please, if you're listening to us, no if you if you subscribe to us in some way, uh, please leave us a review, put a rating on there. Uh, we would we would love feedback uh, from you in terms of what your various audio subscriptive services are. Yes, Frank. Frank, we're looking to you for approval. I think you guys got it. Who's the guest today? E-M-S-R. We said that already. We did. He's but just we'll double. He's just double checking to make sure we're awake. It you know, is let's late. start asking Basically, Frank that. Basically, I'm saying bring the guest on. Oh, oh, Frank. Let's go to EM. Hi, uh, E. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I get to say hi, and then when we then when we say when, when the show's over, you can say bye. <laughs> Jack's very funny. I'm very funny. <laughs> very. Um, welcome to the show, E. Where are you calling us from? I'm in Calumet, Michigan, mm. the Upper Peninsula. Calumet, isn't that the stuff that's on the cans on the shelf in The Shining with the like the Indian logo with the headdress? Wow, that is a really astute reference. Yes. Thank you. That is exactly what is on the cans. I don't know if it has any relationship to this town at all or not, though. Yeah, right. <laughs> if it's just winky dink that yeah, it happened. Maybe. But yeah, that, oh my God, that is such a great reference. <laughs> um, I love that movie. Yeah, of course. <laughs> Well, there's a there's a full disclosure. There's a bar here in Cincinnati that's not too terribly far from where I live. It's called the Overlook Lodge, and when the guy opened it up, he revamped the whole place inside, and it is a shining themed bar. It, it looks like you're in the hotel. Oh wow, and it's that super would be cool. Great, but I don't know, a little creepy if you yeah. have one too many. It is, and they, <laughs> he found like a can of that baking powder or whatever it is, and it's on one of the shelves behind the bar. That's the only reason that that name jumped out at me so quickly. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it relates to the to the village, but um, I'm in Calumet, Michigan, which is in the Upper Peninsula. So, so how many coats are you wearing right now? Since it, we're talking in like early to mid November. Well, um, it was sixteen when I woke up this morning, oh. um, and we just got a winter storm this weekend, so about a foot of snow. Mm. Wow! Um, so you know, one or two parkas. It's about two parkas so far. It's a a a two-parka day. day. (laughs) Yeah. Nailed it. (laughs) Um, So here in Cincinnati, it also gets very cold, and I've never liked it as a Texan who does not really deal with the cold weather that well. How many parkas, parkas should I be wearing? The answer is none. I'm going to Texas or I'm staying in bed. That's fair. That's totally fair. Um, I've actually lived, uh, I lived in Los Angeles for a while. Yes. So I, I've, I've had my time in the sun. Well, um, when did you go to LA? Um, I was at LA, in LA for graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was out there from about 2008 to about 2015. Mm-hmm. So I spent some time out there and I enjoyed it, but I really missed sort of the natural beauty of my home state. Yeah. So I came back. Yeah. When you were out there, did you stay out? Were you in grad school the whole time? Like you went out for grad school? That's just what you did. And then you came 
back to your I home state? I did go out for grad school and stay a little after. Um, I shot a couple short films while I was out there. Um, moved to Venice for a little while. Oh, yeah. And did some more writing. Uh, yeah. But all my family and everything is back here in Michigan. So, um I decided to come back to the home state. Do you feel more inspired? Like as far as like ins- inspiration goes for the writing, you're you're, you're talking about two very different kinds of geographies and weather and, and all that stuff. As far as the inspiration living out there on the West Coast and then coming back to where you're at in Michigan, are, are there different feelings of uh, inspiration or where you're going to draw on your well to write from? Yeah, um, I'm actually kind of a wanderer. I don't stay in one place too long. Um, so I spent like, um, some time in Taos, New Mexico Mm. and, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Um, and every place I go is a little different. Um, there's a lot of, you know, similarities and, um, I always notice things that remind me of another place when I'm somewhere else. Um, but it, it definitely leads to different stories and different characters um, and different types of inspiration, music, food, um, yeah, sure. people. Um, yeah, it's I, I love exploring different places for just that reason. Um, and it's nice to spend some time. You know, I spent like three months in Taos, New Mexico, and that was I, I could have stayed longer happily. But um, it, it you get a little bit more a sense of things than just visiting for a weekend or a couple weeks. Um, so yeah, it's very inspiring and I do think it does fill the well in different areas in yeah. different ways. Um, yeah. So, um, I, I did enjoy my time out in Los Angeles and Venice. Um, but it, it I, I seem to write better here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little quieter. Um, I can be a little more remote, um, there's not so much a demand to, um, uh, social demand. Um, okay. so I get a little more done. I think I'm a little mm-hmm. more focused when I'm here. Does do it, you, so mm, do you feel like your topics vary? Like in one location, there's you, you write about a certain amount, a certain genre or topic of things. And then maybe back in your home state, you're writing about different things. Do you, do you see that you're, your content, your subject matter kind of splits by location. Actually, no, it's, I, it's hard to explain. Stories kind of come to me, um, either through a character or, um, a situation. Um, and it's sometimes tied to the location, but not always, not necessarily. Sometimes I need some distance. So, you know, after I spent time in New Orleans, it wasn't until I was back in Michigan again for graduate school a different time um, that a story popped into my head that was set in New Orleans. Um, it took the characters that long to sort of form, mm-hmm. develop, and then speak up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, sure. Yeah. So, um, I kind of get called to things. Um, it's an urging that, you know, like I might be working on a project, but something just, you know, a character shows up and demands my attention. And if they're that insistent, I, I listen. So I, I love this because again, that word that I can't figure out that has to do with like the magic. Oh, um, I think it's magical realism. realism that, you're... that it's exactly right. Okay. Magic realism is about having these magic. It's, it's basically like having creativity be a real presence in your life. The same way that she's talking about 
you know, your character showing up and demanding that you pay attention to them. That's your real life getting affected by these things that are just like imagination. Yeah. And in today's script, there are some very real elements of things that aren't necessarily real in the way we understand things to be. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you were talking about it, it is it's a situation where it's very much, you know, it could be just a story about the backstage of a theater. Um, and it's, you know, could continue as it is. But in this case, there's a little magical element where you have to suspend your disbelief um, to, I guess, enjoy the story. Um, but yeah, I think that it just, I don't know. Um, in this case, uh, when the idea came, um, it kind of demanded some magic. So I had no choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, and especially if you've got characters that are like developing in your brain and like whispering things to you as far as creative, as far as creativity goes. Yeah. You don't have a choice because you're, you, you got to get it out of your system, right? Yeah. I, I tend to, um, I wanted to start life as a filmmaker and I am a director as well. So I tend to write and and it's because I see scenes or full-fledged movies. So there's always that visual element um, that's really insistent. So a lot of times I'm watching and listening to characters um, as I'm writing. So I'm seeing detailed scenes. And in this case, you know, um, I, I, once I get into, once I've, you know, started writing, I tend to follow the characters and sometimes things pop up that surprise me. Like in the case of this script, the magical element sort of just happened before my eyes, even though it was in my imagination. And it was like, oh, oh, well, that's interesting. I didn't know we were going to do that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're surprised. You're surprising even yourself. Now, how am I going to manage to because I knew I couldn't just have one instance. So I'm like, and how else am I going to work this into this? Mm-hmm. You know, like, now how do we make this work? That sounds <laughs> so it's really exciting, fun. Thing, but mm-hmm. it's also um, challenging. Um, and sometimes, you know, you can get a little frustrated. It's like, oh, really? Okay. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so, and so, yeah, in the script, The Imaginist, it's the story of uh, this guy, Miksa. We're talking, uh, what, 1920s. Uh, it's a vaudeville era, and this main character, Miksa, is involved in, you know, sort of a, a shoddy production involving a, a two-person horse costume. And he, but as the imaginist, he also has this incredible talent to mime uh, very, very, very believable scenarios around him whether it's like a butterfly or being at sea on a boat like he's extremely convincing to the point when people see him exercising this talent they see what What it's supposed to be yeah and that that element comes through in the script where we get to go in and out of reality into this imagination where um you know he is pretending that he's on a ship and the and the producer watching him sees the ship rocking and and is a part of that world for a little bit. So in terms of production elements, there's a lot of in and out that's really fun to play with. Thanks. Yeah. Um, it's, it was uh, it, that particular moment in the script was really exciting when it sort of revealed itself to me um, because I just had him um, sort of defeated. This is, you know, spoiler alert. This is towards the end of the script. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's sort of left the show and now he's just mopping up in a diner. That's his job now. And 
initially I just had him doing that and it seemed sort of sad. And I initially, that's where I was going to end the script. And all of a sudden, as I had him, I was describing him mopping, I started to think about, you know, somebody swabbing a deck Hmm. and how, you know, with his talent, that's something that he could make visible. And then the producer character showed up in my mind and was like, oh, well, we'll have him walk by and see this and then give the audience that moment where they're like, oh, he's finally going to get discovered. He's finally going to make it. But then in sort of true Hollywood fashion, (laughs) sort of, okay, and we've got to make this lunch appointment and, you know, and just sort of witnesses magic and then just kind of nope not what i'm looking for and moves on mm. it really it, it you, it's such a toy with the audience's mm. emotions moment because you're right you're in this moment the producer sees him he's just doing his thing and the producer sees it as it's intended of him being on this boat in the rain swabbing the deck and all that and you're, and you're like i don't know for me i got my hopes up i was totally falling into your trap uh e of wanting things to work out for this guy and then it just Oh, and the, the the balloon pops, and it's it's such a sad, perfect little ending. I love that ending. Oh, thanks. I'm I'm yeah. I'm sorry to to do you know jerk the rug out from under you, but um. Yeah, you made me feel something. It's okay. <laughs> I'm, yeah, um, it's just you know this. Um, you're right. It is set in the late twenties, early thirties. That sort of um the dying days of vaudeville, mm. and so because vaudeville was on its way out, and so many amazing talents got left behind when things changed. You know, not everybody is capable of making those adaptations from one medium to another, you know, keeping up with the time or keeping up with the technology and people fall through the cracks. And, and that's who Mika, you know, unfortunately is and was. And so, um, in the dying days of vaudeville were a little, you know, sad, you know, mm-hmm. it was a transition and, and some, something was lost. Something was, you know, retained, but, um, yeah, unfortunately Miksa had to be sacrificed. Yeah. <laughs> so is there a, I mean, setting it in the 1920s during the vaudeville era is a very, very specific and I would think conscious choice is there a personal connection as to why you wanted to tell this story this way yeah um well it's it's um my grandfather uh was he came to america when he was in his teens and the very first thing he did was join a vaudeville act and traveled around um and he was in a horse act, a horse costume act, and he literally was the back end of the horse. <laughs> and, um, uh, um, oh no! Oh man, that's uh, yeah. Oh man. Shortly, um, my my grandfather was also a very stoic, sort of inscrutable man. So we don't we didn't talk a lot. Children, um, he was very old country, old school. Children are sort of seen and not heard, and you know. Um, so I didn't really hear about his vaudeville days. And um, there was a picture that survived of the act. And my dad gave me a copy um, after he passed, my grandfather passed away. And I just, you know, I always imagined like, what was, what was it like coming (laughs) to America and then taking up in a vaudeville act as a teenager? Mm -hmm. And so because my grandfather couldn't tell me the story or, you know, I didn't get that story. um, I, invented it. 
Yeah. <laughs> I just sort of um, started imagining. And, you know, there's some um, inspiration from my grandfather, but Meeks is definitely, you know, sort of his own character. Um, he sort of blossomed from that, you know, idea of what would it be like to be in a vaudeville act, a right. not very good vaudeville act, a vaudeville <laughs> act that, you know, during a time when vaudeville is starting to go away. Well, did you have so, to do a lot of research into vaudeville in order to set the scene or kind of understand some of the nuance of it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd already done some research just out of curiosity when I found out my grandfather was in vaudeville. And also, um, I'm going to date myself a bit, but I grew up on The Muppet Show. Heck yeah, you did. You live and breathe. Favorite. <laughs> that was my favorite, favorite show growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and that is essentially vaudeville. Yeah. Um, mm. And so, I, you know, I think I'd already started researching it. You know, I knew my – just I just had the knowledge my grandfather was in an act. Um, and so over the years, it just sort of – I, I would read and research here and there, but when I sat down to do the script, I did do some more intensive research and stumbled on all kinds of fascinating, you know, facts. And that definitely helped write the script. It definitely, I think it definitely gave it um, more authenticity than just, you know, what I was capable of learning from a photograph and mm -hmm. some yeah. vague stories. <laughs> what What did your grandpa end up doing? You know, you didn't get his vaudeville days. What What do you remember him doing? Um, well, he had, um, I, I think he went away during World War II. And then when he came back, he went to work. Um, my family's from the lower peninsula of Michigan originally in Battle Creek. Mm -hmm. And there's these cereal um, companies based there. And he went to work for one of the cereal companies and, you know, worked there until he retired. Like breakfast cereal? Yeah. yeah okay. Yep. Yep. That was a big part of my life growing up. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, it was, you know, one of the biggest employers in Battle Creek. So pretty much everybody everybody's family, every, right. everybody had at least one family member that worked for either of the big cereal companies mm -hmm. that were there. So, um, yeah, that's what he did. And he did have a farm, like he had some land and he grew vegetables and did a lot of farming and, you know, that was sort of his side thing. And, uh, we spent a lot of time running around picking tomatoes off the vine and yeah. peaches mm -hmm. out of the tree. So I'm, I'm thinking just about the, the, how tough that must be. I mean, first of all, it, traveling, moving to another country, cr crossing an ocean, uh, language issues, all that stuff. But then also like finding work in like show business, show business kind comedy. of, but not really. And it's definitely right. before anything had really been glamorized as far as Hollywood goes or any of that stuff. Yep. It's just, it's such a, the, the amount of bravery that I feel like a person has to have. And at the end of the day, they are just trying to find work. He's just trying to eat. Because it's there's no guarantees. It's the freaking twenties. Like it's just. I think that's just such a fascinating, like true grit sort of people. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because vaudeville that that was sort of the democratic side of vaudeville. Um, a lot of immigrants that came to America, you know, ex hoping for prosperity, found you know it wasn't that easy to get work. Yeah, um, and. But vaudeville was very democratic in that if you had an act that somebody wanted to watch, no matter what it was, 
and you could draw an audience, then you got a place on stage. Oh, that's cool. And so there were a lot of immigrants that, um, you know, had acts singing, playing music, um, animal acts, you know, you name it. And, um, they came from all over, um, not just the United States, but also from, you know, as immigrants. And, uh, that is the nice part that's sort of democratic about, um, not everybody got paid well. Um, it really depended on your, you know, how successful you were on the circuit. Some people made a great living and then some people, you know, nearly starved. Sure. So yeah, yeah, it, it definitely took, um, a tough, constitution to to risk vaudeville yeah and um so in the script here we have mixa being a a horse's ass literally (laughs) (laughs) did you not see that no it's very good sorry yeah (laughs) and he's um fallen in love with this this comedian this young woman comedian who is having a hard time on the circuit because she's a little bit ahead of her time yeah and so he interrupts um basically the manager of the whole show to say she's part of our act now and uh, yes, being extremely noble yes and his his horse head does not like this happening and uh, of course as things as things play themselves out um emma is her name she ends up getting picked up by the so said producer who mm-hmm. sees a little bit of the magic at the end and uh, pretty much i guess just kind of i'm going to assume breaks meeks's heart yeah yeah yeah, things don't end well, sadly, for mm. Mixa, and she does, but uh, you kind of can't blame her, I you mean, know? such she's, is life. She's surviving, just like everybody else, um, and she also has, you know, ambition, and, um, you know, the movies are taking over, and the producers come, and she has a chance to make it in the pictures. Now, Sadly for Emma, it may not work out well because there were a lot of people that got discarded in the early days of, you know, the studios and film. So um, we don't know that it will work out for her, but it's definitely an opportunity that, you know, she'd be silly not to take. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and poor Miksa, too. Like, so, you know, his buddy that he's in the horse costume with, this other guy, Blue, who the only, the picture that I've got in my head, there's a little bit of a disconnect, but as far as personality goes, all I can picture is the the baby Herman character from Roger Rabbit, just like with that (laughs) stogie, like, Miksa, you just, come on, man, we gotta do our thing here. And, like, that's, that's, I don't know, that's how I'm picturing it. And he's Mm. telling this guy, hey, man, I know you like her, and I don't blame you. She's a pretty girl and all this, but don't chase after her. It's not going to work out. And no guy who's ever been told that who likes a girl really listens to that advice right. ever, in the history of, of, of anything, I don't think. Right. Yeah, I don't think I've ever – yeah, no. <laughs> no. If you like somebody, no one's going to talk you out of that. It, you're, it's something you exactly. just got to figure out for yourself. Right. That's so true. Yeah. And he does. This journey yeah, is him figuring is definitely- out. Blue is definitely the realist. Like he, yeah. he's seen it all. He's a little jaded. Right. Um, he, he definitely has that survival instinct and, you know, he, he's trying to toughen up the kid, but you know, everybody's their own person. So you got to cut your own teeth. That's right. Yeah. And unfortunately for Miksa, you know, he's just, he's not ever going to be a blue, you know, right. he's going right. to survive in his own way. Right. You talk about how you, you sometimes you'll have like the inspiration of characters like sort of talking to you and helping you. I mean, not in a literal sense, but I think you know what I mean. And just the, yeah, yeah. Um, 
how much of a backstory outside of this have the characters revealed like to you uh, how blue and Meeksa met why in the world a guy like blue brought this kid into his act in the first place like how thought out outside of the script is this for you well um Meeks is probably the most developed because I spent the most time thinking about his motivations and and you know his relationship to to his dreams and the theater and his love for Emma. Um, but both Emma and Blue do have pretty extensive backstories. They don't, you know, I don't sit down necessarily on shorter scripts and do extensive backstory yeah. work. Um, I do some, but with shorter scripts, it's, it's not as necessary. I don't think for me, um, but it's inevitable that they reveal that to me as I'm going anyway. So yeah. I end up with quite, substantial backstory for for all of them um except for maybe you know like the minor character like the producer and you know sort of but the major characters emma meeks and blue all have pretty extensive backstories now um through the process of writing the script it's like oh well he's he's behaving like this because you know blues blues first of all blues a little person so he's really had a hard time of things um in in the business and he gets to be the head of the horse he gets to be in charge of the act and so you know he gets to be in control so for him because he feels like he's worked so hard and so long he's earned the position of decision maker mm-hmm. and you know he picks Mixa because Mixa so you know green and naive and he can be ordered around at first um and he knows Meeks is probably in a money bind, you know, not doesn't have a lot of money and uh, options. So he can pay him, you know, he can. I, I don't think Blue probably tells the truth about what they're earning yeah. to, to Meeks. Yeah. <laughs> you know, says we'll split it 50 50, but it's probably more like 70 30. Yeah. not that great of a um, Bruda. But, and, and, you know, Blue's the kind of person who has had to really work to survive so he justifies that to himself by you know i gotta eat you know and the kid will be fine he's oh, young you know? danny devito that's, <laughs> yes I that's just, exactly it, who it just is just hit me like a ton he's, of bricks it's like danny devito from space jam <laughs> yeah yeah, is yeah, who yeah, he is. yeah right. <laughs> he's a little alien martian with the uh, cigarette and the suit yeah. that's i love it. it so much I could totally see, yeah, I could totally see him. You know, I'd be thrilled if he would play. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, I, all I'm thinking yeah. of is now like the the, 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 the the goat character in Hercules and he's like trying yeah. to teach this, oh my gosh. This, this green dude like, you know, uh, how, to, how the world works. I love that movie. I do too. Hercules. Honey, you mean yeah. Huncules. Mm-hmm. Oh, it made me some sweet music. That's what she says. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you want to read a I really do. scene from this? Yeah. So um, we're going to go ahead and read a little love scene from The Imaginist. Listeners, today Jack will be reading for Mixa. I will be reading Emma. And Frank, who is here, will be reading our action headings. Hi, Frank. Hello. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm all right. We're lucky enough to have Frank again. We're on like a bit of a Frank streak on the show. I'm happy it. about it. Yes. How do you feel about it, Frank? feel good. Oh, sweet. <laughs> good. Okay, well, uh, E, hang on just a second. We'll be right back with you, okay? Okay, thanks. Awesome. 
And uh, and, and be, so the the Miksa character is Hungarian. We were asking her before we started the show to just to get a vibe. I I, I can't say that I'm not going to do some kind of affect, but I'm not trying to have an. I don't know what an accurate Hungarian accent is. I feel like if you don't know at all, I should probably not what do a it. Hungarian accent is. You shouldn't do one. Okay, fair enough. Okay, that's fair. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, the setup's pretty easy here because we start with two people coming into a room together. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. let's just let this love scene happen, Jack. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just relax. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Frank, whenever you're ready, take it away. Interior. Bijou Palace Theater. Dressing room. Next day. Close on Emma's reflection in the vanity mirror. Too ashamed to look at her reflection, Emma covers her eyes with her hands as she dries her tears with, with a hanky. Miksa arrives at the open door, carrying two teacups. He stops and watches Emma for a moment. Miksa clears his throat to get her attention. <clears throat> Emma looks up. She sees Miksa in the mirror's reflection. I have tea. Emma blushes. She turns to face Miksa. Blue isn't here. Isn't here yet, I mean. Miksa shrugs, raises the cup, showing her the tea. For you. Emma motions for him to come in and sit. Come on, silly. Everybody else just barges in. Miksa hands her a cup and sits at a respectful distance. <laughs> so gallant. Sorry, what is gallant? <laughs> Never mind, jeez. <laughs> she blows on the too hot tea. <sighs> so, what's your act? Miksa stares at her. You didn't dream of being the horse's patootie your whole life. Where do you come from, anyway? Budapest. She nods vacantly, sipping her tea. Well, what's your act? I am imaginist. Emma raises her eyebrow, curious. You call it different. Um, You say a mummer, a, a mime. Yes, mime? Emma nods and takes a sip. Yeah, 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 sure. A mime. We got lots of those around here. Miksa jumps up, taking the teacup from Emma. He sets it on the vanity. He pulls her up out of the chair. Not just mime. No, more, too. Imaginist. He imagines a butterfly flutter between them. He reacts to the butterfly in such a convincing manner, a butterfly appears. Emma gasps. <gasps> Tracking the butterfly, Emma and Miksa move closer and closer together until the butterfly lands in Emma's hair. Miksa reaches up, extending his hand. The butterfly flits, landing on his finger. Miksa brings it down between them. The wings flutter slowly, opening and closing. Though only black and white, it glows. Emma looks into Miksa's eyes. The butterfly disappears. Miksa kisses Emma passionately. Emma falls into his arms. They kiss and kiss. And scene. That's all it takes for me. Miksa's a charming dude. Yeah, you just imagine butterflies everywhere and you got it made. Guys, yeah, important rules. Bring her tea, sit at a respectful distance, and then be really good at imagining butterflies. <laughs> and you're set. Nailed it. E, that's such a sweet scene. I love it. Oh, thank you. Where did this idea to have things come up black and white versus color show up for you? Well, um, I wanted the magic to sort of, usually when you see in film, things are always, you know, in color when they're magic. And in this case, um, I have, I, I intend to shoot this, direct it, and I didn't really want the whole film to be in black and white. Um, I wanted it to be in color. And I had a very specific idea about the color palette. 
And I still wanted something that would set the imaginings, you know, the the magical part. Um, I wanted to set it somehow apart. And I thought, you know, it also reminds you a bit of the early motion pictures that are starting to take over the vaudeville theaters. Mm-hmm. You know, they were black and white and sort of flickering images. Yeah. And they seemed like magic to mm-hmm. people. I can so, so picture that. So yeah. There. So here's this guy who can, you know, he's not just a mime. He can actually make you see pictures, you know, without electricity or, you know, under his own energy and magic and and so i don't know black and white seems sort of a natural choice to sort of fit with that idea of the motion pictures coming as well i mean honestly you're doing the exact same thing by writing the story jack and i are sitting here going oh we see this yeah you are the imaginist em i really hope that when people you know read the script they're able to sort of visualize you know have a very clear picture in their head what they're gonna see um because that sort of, you know, he's an imaginist. I have to do him justice. <laughs> yeah, no, I it was, I felt it was very easy reading the script to sort of see it playing out in my head, you know, running through a hallway of this theater building and, and all I it was I thought it was very easy to see play out in my head. Mm hmm. I love right. the quote in the beginning. You, the, the script starts with uh, a super of a quote that says, vaudeville may be a kind of lunch counter art, but then art is so vague and lunch is so real. And it's a quote by Edwin Milton Royal, who I'm not familiar with, but I love that quote. Yeah, that actually was one of the things I stumbled on early in my research that never let go of me. It just, you know, it. I come from a working class background and... um there's always this idea, you know, high art versus low art and vaudeville vaudeville was, you know, definitely family entertainment, but it was sort of derided by the upper classes as being, you know, low art. And it does have a history in, you know, Commedia dell'arte and, um, you know, the slapstick, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, it is a low art, but, um, it's legitimate. It's legitimate art. And, I think what Royal's trying to say is that, you know, we all deserve to eat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. And and art is nourishing and, you know, high art, low art, it, it's, you know, vaudeville's nourishing. So um, it's, it, again, that sort of democratic nature of vaudeville that, you know, I sort of fell in love with. I do love – I'm such a sucker for uh, like any sort of like maybe niche – like art, I mean, obviously, comic books are way more mainstream than than maybe they used to be when I was younger. But geez, like I like getting into like knowing like little bits of offbeat stuff, and it, it and I feel like vaudeville is definitely one of those forms of art that like you could really sink your teeth into learning about a bunch of people that nobody knows about and who never really made much of an impression outside of the stage that they were on during that real narrow period of time. Yeah, I mean. It- Sadly, art, even now, isn't a meritocracy. You know, there's a lot right. of really talented people that fall through the cracks. And, you know, like Miksa, um, Van Gogh, you know, yeah. he, it's timing. You know, it's sort of like you have to be of your time um, to really hit it. Um, so, yeah, vaudeville, there was a lot lost. But the nice thing about vaudeville is it's sort of, even though it was absorbed by, you know, the pictures, it didn't really go away entirely. You know, we still see it today. You know, like I was talking about the Muppet show earlier, but even now, I mean, if you think about like, um, America's got talent, right. You know, or, 
Um, That's exactly even right. Family Guy. I mean, Seth MacFarlane is constantly, you know, churning out, putting little vaudeville bits yep. in Family Guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, oh um, yeah. I mean, you know, you- vaudeville. Isn't the gone? <laughs> you talk America's Got Talent. You talk about the Gong Show that's that's back. I mean, all that stuff. Yes. Any sort of variety programming absolutely has roots right there. Yeah, and and I think that that's you know part of what that quote also sort of spoke to me is that you know lunch is you know lunch is real and mm-hmm. we still eat lunch you know and so um, that really spoke to me and I felt like it sort of really captured the mood of the Imaginist. So I definitely wanted to share that with everyone. So you talk about pre-production and yeah. uh, where are you with that kind of stuff? What is, what does production look like for you right now? Ah, well, it looks like uh, stalled <laughs> or um, in a holding pattern maybe is a better way to put it. Okay. Um, I would like to find a producer. I don't have a producer right now. And my first two shorts that I shot when I was out in Los Angeles, they were micro budget, very sort of each was shot in 12 hours with three characters at one location. Um, they were shot, you know, a couple years apart, but the same sort of circumstance, extremely low budget, 12 hour shoot. And that was it. You know, whatever we didn't get in 12 hours, we didn't get. Um, and I, with this script, I really want this to have more, this is more ambitious. It needs more time. You know, I, this is not something you can shoot in even a weekend. You know, this is this is going to be more of a production. And while I did enjoy working as a producer on the first two shorts, I was also writing and directing, and that was fine for those. But I really want a producing partner before I move forward with the script. So I'm in, you know, sort of the process of hunting for a producer. Um, and I'm like Miksa, you know, um, they keep walking by. <laughs> so, yeah. So um, in the meantime, uh, I'm working on my debut novel. So oh. I've um, moved a little away from film for a minute, um, but it is based on a screenplay I already wrote. Mm-hmm. So I sort of took a screenplay that I had, a feature, um, and it's sort of a really great outline for a novel and now I'm just sort of filling it in. Well, yeah, so, cause you got all those characters that are speaking to you and you and you're fleshing them out this way. There. Yeah. So, um, so in the meantime, until I find a producing partner, um, this is going to have to wait. But the exciting thing is, um, I just moved to Calumet. Um, I was originally from the lower peninsula. Um, I just moved to Calumet this past summer. Um, so I moved across the street from this great, historic theater. Oh, cool. (laughs) And I thought it was really sort of serendipitous that you called, um, because I had already started thinking about the script again. This had been on the shelf for a while. And when I moved across from this theater, I get to look at this lovely old theater. Of course, Miksa and Emma and Blue started to make regular appearances. (laughs) Yeah. They're showing up. And then you called. (laughs) So, um, it's a sign. I might, I might be putting a little more energy into finding a producer now. Well, that's so. super cool, and I love you know the, just the, you know a theme in the script: the idea of belief and you know believing in yourself, believing in your work, and I, I hopefully maybe that would carry over from this interview, and it would you, it could get people fired up to help you get this thing off the ground because it's a lovely script. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, the great thing about you know being a filmmaker 
and a writer is if, you know, you can keep your work around and, you know, sort of wait for the appropriate time. And I don't know, it's sort of a holistic approach, I guess. But if something I don't I don't like forcing things, just like with the scripts, if the characters aren't speaking to me, you know, set them aside mm-hmm. until they start talking again. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this case, you know, it's one of those things where I love the script, but I didn't have any locations in mind. I didn't, you know, have any actors in mind and I was working on other things, but then, you know, I move across the street from this theater and all of a sudden it's like, well, that's a lovely location sitting right across the street from my apartment. It really shows (laughs) up. It's really hard to not believe in signs when something like that happens, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it really kind of spooky. Um, I recently did start researching again, and um, I was researching history on that particular theater, and I discovered that there actually was once a vaudeville theater in Calumet called the Bijou. Holy cow. What? I know. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. yeah Are I, you um, incepting us right now? Are we? Is this inception? That's this whole interview. We're being incepted. Whoa, whoa. No, really. Um <laughs> I had chosen the Bijou Palace as as the name of the theater in the Imaginist um, way back, you know, probably 10 years ago um, when I first started working on it because I had read, you know, all these vaudeville theaters always had these very grand names, you know. They were the Orpheum, you know, the Palace, the Bijou. And so, you know, of course, I had to make it even more over the top and the Bijou Palace. But, you know, getting (laughs) – Getting up here and then doing a little research, it's spelled differently. But yeah, there actually was once a, wow. a Bijou vaudeville. And the interesting thing about vaudeville is that it was very specifically family entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was intended for families. And um, that actually was the billing, um, sort of the subheading on the theater here was, you know, this is family vaudeville. <laughs> Listen, Jeez. if you want to imaginist up some lotto numbers for me, that would be fine. <laughs> yeah. so. If I could do that, you'd already have seen the imaginist <laughs> on right. the screen. Yeah, she makes a very good point. Uh, well, if anybody is looking to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email is always the best way. Um, and I think you have that available. It's emsparrow at gmail.com. Thank you. Awesome. We'll have links uh, for that for you on scriptshopshow.com. Great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, it's such an honor to be on your on your podcast. I love the show. Oh, that's thank so sweet. You. Thank you for submitting your work. Really thank you for coming on. I, I I love how well the timing worked out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it did. And and you know, uh, I'll keep in touch if it goes into production. Yes, yeah. please keep us in the loop. We we love getting updates on stuff like that. Hmm. Hmm. So thank you well, so I'm much, Ian. My pajamas. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Perfect. Thanks so much for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great night. You too. Wow. I know. That's very sweet. Vaudeville. There's, vaudeville. It's it just there's something just so intrinsically romantic about you know starving artist theater sort of work, especially you're talking about you know pre depression and yes. it's just like that. That's such a very specific period I, I there's there's a lot of the aesthetic there that i really like even though spoiler alert about jack i actually do not like the 20s capital t really? the 20s as an aesthetic i hate it oh 
I know, I know. Art Deco? It's fine. I like Art Deco, but I don't like like the whole the flapper thing and all that stuff. I'm Why not, not a fan. I don't know. I just don't like it. That was a way of life. I know. It's okay. People I... were like trying new things and embracing new things. Artistically, as an aesthetic, I don't care for it. And part of it, what are you going to do when I throw the 1920s themed New Year's Eve party in 2020? I'm going to have to just suffer through it. It's fine. Oh it's okay. Gosh. We are allowed to like different things. <laughs> All right. Well, um, if you you sound like you're trying to start a motorcycle over there. Uh, if you have something that you've written that you but like, not it, about the 1920s. Well, you can. God sakes. Fine. Jack's not going to like it that much. You should send it to us, and maybe we'll like it. Maybe we won't. But you'll never know until you do. So you should go on to Film Freeway That's and look a good us point. up. Yes, embrace your art. Send us your scripts. Yeah, you should do it. Or uh, go on to scriptshopshow.com/slash/submit, and you can uh, contact us that way as well. Mm-hmm. We're available on Facebook. We're available on Instagram. We're available on Twitter. Uh, and you should reach out to us and connect with us in uh, on those ways. And we would love to talk to you. Friend us and follow us and rate us and review us and I didn't work out the last bit of that Yes, but you're kind of going and it's kind of vaudevillian. A little bit. A little bit. Put your arms in the air. I wish I had like an old timey piano I could plunk out like Rolf. Oh, that'd be so cool. We put a little baby piano on Olive's Christmas list for her grandmothers. Oh, yes. That's such a good idea. I want to see that kid bang. Oh my gosh, that needs to happen. Bang, 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 bang. Uh, folks, thanks so much for listening. We yes, really appreciate we really your time do. and your effort. And It may not be that much effort. It's on the internet. But like, we still appreciate <laughs> it. Your time is valuable and you're choosing to listen to us. And that means uh, something. We really do appreciate you being here. And we can't wait to talk all kinds of tomfoolery with you next week. So until next week, friends, that's a wrap. Script Shop was created by Allison West. Hosted by Allison West and Jack Crumley. Produced by Frank Steele. Thanks to iHeartMedia Cincinnati for use of their studio. Intro music, Retro Soul by bensound.com. Outro music by purple-planet.com. Special thanks to all our guests. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.